0: everybody welcome back to the church leaders roundtable podcast this month we are talking about we are talking around i guess speak up and speak out we're talking to lgbtq plus and bipoc voices who um do exactly that. They speak up, they speak out, they they advocate for themselves and for others. And we've got a very special guest on tonight. But before we get into that, let me introduce myself. My name is Kevin Coronado, pronouns he, him. And with me, I've got Sarah. Hey guys. Stacy. Hello. And Darren. And Darren, why don't you take it away? Hey everybody, glad to be here as always.
1: Um, today, I get to bring yet another uh, great friend, colleague, someone who um, I highly respect in in the work that we do for LGBTQ inclusion and racial justice. Um, We go to conferences around the country and we ask all the questions that disrupt all the flows. Um, And we also share that we are Lil Nas X stands. Um, If you need to look up what a stand is, look on Um, (laughs) (laughs) urbandictionary.com. You know, just try to be (laughs) inclusive. I just want people to have resources to find out what they need to know. Um, But but yes, yes, Grayson Hester is here with us uh, joining all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. And I will encourage Grayson to to just boast on yourself. Tell us all the good things about you, what you're doing right now. Uh, go for it.
2: <laughs> um, well, typically, I'm not encouraged to boast on myself in church spaces, um, but I'm here. <laughs> that's why uh, we're deconstructing that. <laughs> that's right. Deconstructing. Uh, Hey, everyone. My name is Grayson Hester. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, Like Darren said, I'm coming at you all from Atlanta, Georgia, and I am actually in the city of Atlanta. I'm not one of the millions who live hours away and say they're in Atlanta. I'm actually in the realm of Keisha Lance Bottoms, but not for long. Um, And the shade is still here. (laughs) (laughs) Her career literally bottomed out. Um, (laughs) I probably shouldn't have said that in public if I have any hope of... Retaining my dignity here. Um, so <laughs> I Best am. Thank you. <laughs> like Darren said, I am indeed a little Nas X stan. Um, so much so that I posted a TikTok after Montero, uh, the music video and song were released and he liked it because it got viral enough. So Lil Nas X did like my video. He has seen my face. Um, I you hope he remembers blessed. it. I yes. have. Yes, truly. It's more blessed um, than the rest of us. <laughs> yes, less beyond measure. <laughs> my cup is running over, and hasn't stopped since. Um, <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> he did say it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't have cocaine, but I am happy to be here drinking with my friends. Um, yes, come on,
1: quote the quote the song. Call me by yes. your
2: name. <laughs> um, I am a recent grad uh, from Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology, uh, where I did a three year Master of Divinity with concentration in Christian Social Ethics uh, degree. Um, graduated summa cum laude as a Stassen Scholar under the mentorship and leadership of Dr. David P. Gushy. Um, and I'm currently taking a gap year um, to just enjoy Atlanta make up for some lost COVID time, make up for some lost grad school time, um, and then start looking at PhD programs. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I hope this doesn't turn me off from any applications. And, uh, yeah, as Darren said, I'm particularly passionate about LGBTQ justice, uh, within and without the church space. Um, and it's particularly how that intersects with racial justice, um, which I think is a pretty advantageous, Uh, advantageous interest to have being in Atlanta, where both of those populations are so prevalent and represented and thriving. Um, But yeah, just happy to be here. I love talking with people, um, whether it's recorded or not. And when it is recorded, even better. So thank you for inviting me. And I'm excited to see where we go with this.
1: Absolutely, and you know we we kind of free, free wheel and we and we go around, but I know you have so many amazing things to say, so I'm just <laughs> gonna jump right in with a with a hard question. Oh Lord. and you can take this wherever you want to take it. Um, but uh some of these questions are going to come from the and, which is this uh stack of questions <laughs> that just help you to like think deeper and have great conversations um okay. And since we often uh, talk about the racial lenses, um, I think this I think I think you're well prepared to jump right in with this one. The question right. from the card reads, what does it mean to be white in a society that claims to be colorblind? Oh, right. <laughs> I told you I was going to go for Jumping it. Jumping right in right in at the deep end. <laughs> I hope you buckled up. Can you repeat the question? Sure. What does it mean? (laughs) You can also phone a friend. Right. (laughs) What does it mean? Excuse me,
2: Brian Kemp. Right. We're talking about that thing you said we couldn't talk about. I mean, you could call
1: Papa John's Pizza, I'm sure. (laughs) Actually, no,
2: because a car crashed into the Papa John's nearest to my house recently. Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) The ancestors are really like, oh, so you want to use what word? Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This car was fueled by vibranium. There are
1: so many levels of inside jokes happening right now. Google all of this stuff. Um, The question (laughs) was, what does it mean to be white in a society that claims to be
2: colorblind? Who decided that we were colorblind? Mm -hmm. I think it means that uh, there's a reason why Um, white people decided after Barack Obama's I think 08 election certainly his 12 re-election but his 08 election um, that uh, we 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 were colorblind because now there's a a black man in in the white house the whitest house Um, (laughs) all the while Saying that the number one goal of the opposition party, um, to call it Republican, is generous. Um, The number one goal is to stop that black man from doing anything and to make Mm -hmm. him a one term president. Uh, So I think it is to benefit from the new situation and to put in place a new machination that simply adapts to the, the, the new landscape at a, at one time you could be openly racist and promote scientific racism or other racist ideologies and have it directly benefit you. And the minute that that wasn't the narrative that worked, then whiteness spun another narrative that said, oh, now we're colorblind,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, in order to, uh, blind people, forgive the ableist term, um, to what is actually going on. Um, so to be white in a colorblind society is essentially just to continue on as we've always continued on, um, just under different labels and with different language to accommodate the fact that we've had one black president out of 45, um, 46 now. Um, and yeah, it just means that there's more cover for white fragility, more cover for white um racist action politically, socially, et cetera. And uh, a knee jerk response that so called individualized white people can all say at the same time, um, mm-hmm. when anything that makes us uncomfortable happens. Oh no, we're oh. colorblind. I don't see race.
1: Right. Um, After how we literally not- writing it into the laws of this country. Right. And going, oh no, 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 no. We changed our minds.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just a way to to avoid the thing that we created out of sight, out of mind um, in order to just keep doing what we've always been doing.
1: Yeah. And so I, I, I purposely set you up for success, but I set you up because, (laughs) because I love the way (laughs) that you, you stay ready. Like you show up, like what, I got this in my side pocket. I'm ready to (laughs) do it. And as a way to, to, to get to know how you got here, how, how did you get ready? Like, what, you know, some people might say, well, maybe you grew up around this. Maybe you heard this taught Mm. all your life. What was your background? Tell us about that, whether that's church or where you grew up and lead us into how you got to be, um, got to be aware and active Mm. in um, seeing these intersectional lenses.
2: Mm. Um, So (sighs) that's a good question. So I did, I grew up um, not around um, many people of color, um, m- certainly not many black people. I grew up in a small town in rural Appalachia, rural East Tennessee, um, Jefferson City, uh, which is about 40 minutes away from Sevierville, where Dolly Parton um, was born, which is my claimest to famous. Yes. Um, <laughs> she is my patron saint. Um, and so I think uh, growing up where I did would lead people to think like, how, like you said, how, how am I ready? How do I stay ready? How did I get to this point? Um, and there are some things that I can take credit for and can say, like, I specifically did this or did this. Um, but part of it was, was just luck in the sense that I happened. I like to say that my, um, topography was Appalachia, but my sociology was academia. So my dad worked at Carson Newman at the time, college, now university, um, for 42 years, uh, not on st- on faculty, but my social circles, which meant my parents' social circles uh, when I was a kid were professors and um, academic-minded people. Um, and so even though I wouldn't say I grew up conservative or liberal, um, there at least was open-mindedness. The posture with which certain ideas were held, ideals were held, was more a posture of openness, so I think yeah. that set me up to be able to um, not react so defensively, react so fragilely um, to challenging ideas. And then I think if that set up the tee, then what really hit the the ball. Um, to use a very queer metaphor, right? Golf. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that happens, but here we are. Um, <laughs> Pride month. We can do everything. <laughs> That's right. Um, and those outfits, though. Um, (laughs) so, um, what really, uh, I think set me on this course was my youth minister actually. Um, Mm -hmm. so I grew up again in that setting where I was lucky enough to be born in an academic bubble at a moderate, uh, cooperative Baptist fellowship church, which, um, had always been open to the idea of women in ministry, um, and now has a woman as our minister. Um, and my youth minister you know, would, and I know that Shane Claiborne, there's lots of problems with him, but I do owe him a lot in the sense that, you know, where other youth groups, literally any other church in my area um, was reading like I Kiss Date and Goodbye or any of the other books that I see on Twitter and I'm grateful I don't identify with. Uh, we were reading The Irresistible Revolution and Love Wins by Rob Bell.
3: Um, mm, nice. To the
2: extent, like in my junior year of high school, I read Love Wins and I went up to my youth minister and I was like, is hell real? And he was like, I don't know. What do you think about it? And then he was like, Grayson, you know that Genesis is a myth, right? And I was like, or at least the creation stories. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so because I grew up, the soil that I came up out of was not dry, so to speak. And so I was able to hear these things and be like, I can embrace this. I can consider this and not fear for my eternal salvation or fear for um, my social standing. Um, And so then my youth minister took me uh, in 2011 to the second ever Wild Goose Festival. Um, Oh, wow. I didn't know you went that far back with Wild Goose. mm -hmm. I didn't go regularly since then. Um, But I definitely, like before it was where it is now at Hot Springs. It was in Shakori Heels. There's my Appalachian Um, (laughs) near Durham. Um, And uh, yeah. And and so then uh, to fast forward. Because nothing was like clearly defined. It was like, I know I like justice, whatever that is. I know uh, who I stand for. I just don't know why. Um, But I think really where it started to take a hard shift into, I feel passionate about like racial justice specifically and allying to the best that I can um, with people of color, uh, particularly within the LGBTQ community that I discovered myself to be a part of. Um, was coming out. I remember in 2013, I was a freshman in college. And I remember saying the whitest thing ever, which is, oh shit, now I'm a minority. (laughs) 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 Um, Which is accurate in so many ways. (laughs) Um, And, but then because I had that upbringing was like, oh, this is an opportunity for me to empathize with uh, other. And at the time I used the word marginalized people. Um, and so at least I had that mindset, which I know many, many, many white cis gay men like myself don't. Um, and then when it started to become specifically racial justice was uh, my second college. I came back home um, after being away at college, came back to Carson Newman, where I finished out. Um, Dave, my youth minister, reenters the picture as the leader of the Faith and Justice Scholars Program that I was a part of. Um, and I think just like as many white people in what has been known as the Great Awakening in 2015, 2016 oh, really started, I know, it's um, not my term, um, really started seeing clearly um, with the 2015 2016 presidential election, um, just how laid bare the underlying and persistent white supremacy system that is America. Um, not that we have one, but that we are one. Mm. Um, Come on now. <laughs> Um, was laid so bare. Um, Tony Hesey Coates, you know, America's first white president. Um, that coupled yeah. with being part of the forensics team, um, and just having access to people who were similarly minded and pushed me really capitalized on that journey that I had made. And then really discovered at that point that I just felt called to it. Um, I listened to my first ever hip hop album all the way through my senior year of college, which was Damned by Kendrick Lamar, um, because I intentionally chose to do that um, because mm-hmm. I just felt called to it. And, and uh, Michael Eric Dyson came on campus, who is was our fam- most famous alumni. He spoke about his book, The Black Presidency, which he had written at the time. Um, and from there, it was just like I wanted to read everything that I could, wanted to sit with the black people at their table and not the white people at ours, um and just felt a calling to it and that's continued on into my master's program into who i hang out with here in atlanta and what i try to do both like personally spiritually socially intellectually etc um so that was a very long answer um oh, that but was great that Fantastic. is sort of the the rough sketch um of where my particular interest in and in calling to not just lgbtq justice but um, LGBTQ justice, queer justice, if we're using that term, um, that is that doesn't um, marginalize or leave behind, but indeed centers, as it should be, the uh, BIPOC people who made Pride possible in the first place. Mm-hmm. For
1: sure, um, that uh, that does bring me to another like important intersection. That um, like I said, we we spend so much time talking about this stuff. Um, how does your sexual orientation affect the way you feel or think about racism and racial justice? Big
2: question. Take as much time as you like. (laughs) Um, How does, okay. Well, uh, I'll start with, like I said, when I came out in 2013, um, I, I saw it as almost a gift in the sense. And I mean, I see it as a gift, just period. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have at the time, but my, my being gay is a gift and I'm very grateful for it. Um, but with particular regard to racial justice, um, I remember seeing it as a gift where I was like, I have this experience that can help me. And at the time I probably leaned into this maybe to a problematic degree, Um, But I thought at that time when I was 18, 19, that this is a way for me to identify with and empathize with people who, as I have now discovered, like me, um, are oppressed, marginalized, made to feel a certain way because of something they can't control, because of the way that they were made, because of the way that God made them. Um, And I see it as that kind of opportunity where I do think that if I were a straight white male, as opposed to a gay white male, I would have a harder time, um, hearing ideas about whiteness that directly challenge, uh, the fire hydrant that I've, uh, connected my hose to for most of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I do think just how it is to be socialized as I have heard a cishet straight white male makes empathy and critical thinking and uh, engagement with things that make you uncomfortable um, more difficult. I think not having that socialization definitely helped me circumvent some of the uh, the harder work that I've heard cis straight, cis het straight white men having to do. Um, and I just think that uh, it's a matter of integrity, that like, if I were only to advocate for LGBTQ plus or even LG, if we're gonna be honest, yeah. mm-hmm. people <laughs> uh, uh loosely defined, as I know has been the case for most of uh what we consider like explicitly queer history, like at least from the fifties, sixties. Um, if I were to be the cis white gay male who looks down on the act up protests from their their condo or their high rise or their office mm-hmm. building. Yeah. Um, or the ones that, uh, once we get the marriage certificate, we also get the heck out of Dodge. Um, or the ones that once we get the HIV cure, we leave behind all of the black and brown people who are still disproportionately being affected by the epidemic. Um, if I were to do that, then I would still be, I would be betraying myself because Mm -hmm. like a reason why we even have gay as an identity is because of the work and the sacrifice that black and brown people did and do. Um, And so I would still be valuing a force that kills me, Mm -hmm. which is whiteness, um, over an identity that is me. Um, And not to say that I'm not white, but it would be choosing still whiteness and white supremacy over queer justice. Um, And that would just be wrong. And that would be splitting myself. And that's not what we're here to do as people, but particularly as queer people.
1: Yeah, you 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 tapped into some really important things there when it comes to def- defining whiteness as something other than who you are as a person who is white. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about like those those intersections of what does it mean to be a person who who has been socialized and cultured in whiteness as opposed to being who you are? Because uh, the same thing happens right with churches like don't identify as being gay be identify as being a child of God and you're like is that <laughs> who's, who's that helping exactly so right. so so help us think about what is white whiteness versus being white.
2: <laughs> I'm glad I'm drinking. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm on a podcast I'm gonna need to drink so I poured the the white wine but not the whiteness wine. Yes. <laughs> Don't drink the whiteness
1: wine. It's no good no. for you. Big
2: it's difference sour. <laughs> right. <laughs> <The> sour, bitter. <laughs> the tannins are all off. Yeah, um, it's all terrible. Exactly. You're, you're right on, Kevin. Um, <laughs> uh, so anything that I say, I'm about to say, I know there are probably other facets of critical race theory or other Activists or thinkers who would see it completely differently, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm open to that. I'm still learning this, and I know there are so many ways to address and approach and attack whiteness um, because it is so huge. Um, yeah. So, where my current understanding is held loosely um, is that um, being white, um, the word "being" implies some Im- implies that there's something fueling that ship. There's some coal that's being poured into the fu- the furnace, right? Mm. So like, okay. I be, and I'm being, I'm continuing to be um, mm-hmm. through active choices that I make. And so for me to be white, to continue being white, and I think Austin Channing Brown uses this language. I mm-hmm. think maybe Lisa Sharon Harper does, Tawny Heasy Coates does, choosing to be white. James Baldwin kind of did. I think he kind of set them up for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But choosing to be white essentially means choosing to see a video of a black man under a white cop's knee for over nine minutes and, and reacting with anything other, anything other than horror, shock, empathy, sadness, anger, Mm -hmm. at seeing a fellow human being um, being brutalized by the state in such a way, Um, being white is just accepting that everything we see looks like us looks accepting that the world is a mirror when in fact it's not um and so i think that is making an active choice to align your life my life align my decisions my relationships my spending habits my spirituality my very soul Come on with now. something that was superimposed onto me because I believe, and again, held loosely, um, that I was not white until the minute, and I'm not making an abortion argument here, but until the minute that I came out of the womb in a society that created and sustains and defines itself by whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at that moment, me phenotypically having fair skin, me ethnically having Irish and Scottish ancestry. Qualified me as being white beyond anything that I chose at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not responsible for it, but I am responsible to it, meaning that I recognize that I am both white and I am not white in the sense that it is a choice that was made for me. And it is choices that I can continue to make to agree with the choice that was made for me or to disagree with the choice that was made for me and try in whatever ways I can to acknowledge that I can't not be but white, but I can also make choices that are not white. Um, and in trying to do that, I try to, because I can't I can't wash my hands of it, right? I can't mm-hmm. just be like, well, race is a social construct and why should I care about mm-hmm. Tulsa or slavery? Because I'm not white anyway, I'm a child of God. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can't wash my hands of it, but I can continue scrubbing and not just let my hands get filthy. Um, so it's that weird middle space, that queer space, if you will, um, of living in tension. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Um, where, yeah, like I at the end of the day believe that whiteness was created and therefore will be unmade at one point as all things must be, um, ecclesiastically. Um, <laughs> there is a season for everything, and whiteness will one day no longer be in season. Not that whiteness has ever had much to do with seasoning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <and> <laughs> Sarah's over there, like
1: giggling and trying to hold it in desperately. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and so, if if there is an existential outcome for this, which I, as a Christian, um, believe there is, then I would like to align myself more with that possible outcome of this ending and work towards that um, and make it so that when it does end, I'm not so closely aligned with it that I also end.
1: Mm. Now that's something there. I'm That'll curious,
3: as, as you were mentioning, um, just the I, what came to mind when you were mentioning the idea of specifically says had white men being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um but can you talk a, a little bit more about the the idea of white privilege and how mm-hmm. that t- just mentioning that like makes people feel very, very uncomfortable or the disbelief that you know white privilege is not a thing. Is it a thing? Mm-hmm. Can you just speak a little bit more about your thoughts on that and experience?
2: Mm-hmm. So just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, so you're asking me um, just my experiences with maybe the discomfort associated with white, like naming white privilege. Is that what you're asking me?
3: Yeah. Or like, why do you think mainly cis white men have issues or just white people in general have issues with why that word may be so triggering and uncomfortable and how I think Mm. as, as white people, we can... Continue to like acknowledge privilege within work on that idea of that it's it is uncomfortable, but it's important to acknowledge.
2: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Um, I think <laughs> I think um, particularly cis white men, but gay white men, um, white women certainly um, react so uncomfortably. I think it's sort of like when, like you can make fun of anybody, but you can't make fun of somebody's parents or at least their mama. Like, you know, (laughs) you can say this about me, but you can't say this about my mama. Or uh, I was about, since I, I was about to use language that white people wouldn't use or else we will write you a strongly worded email. Um, (laughs) um, And we might even use bold if we're feeling particularly feisty. (laughs) Whoa. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> it's a family. Podcast.
3: I feel my Apple care.
2: Yes.
4: <laughs> I was told I could come into the Apple store.
2: Boom, boom. Um, and I think it's like so I, I where one side of my brain went was like when you say you have white privilege, I have white privilege, and that was the royal you. You royally have white privilege. I specifically have white privilege. Um, it's like making fun of our parents that we didn't know we had. It's like, (laughs) because it's like what gave us life, what produced us, what formed us, what fed us for years and set us on our way, our parents or white privilege. Um, And so it's like, you're not going to make fun of them. Um, And I think on another side, there's an existential, almost like maybe ontological component to it, where it's like, if whiteness, if white identity was created, which it was to, to, for many reasons, one of which being, um, well, specifically to exploit, uh, to justify the exploitation and enslavement of people from Africa. Um, and to allow white people who, people who would become white to sleep soundly at night and justify their atrocities. So that's one component of it. But within that is an identity that is constructed for the sole purpose of producing for the sole purpose of maintaining an economic system and a national project. And it is sustained and secured by producing and by participating in a capitalist economic system. And so whiteness, the the reason why we have white trash as somewhat of a slur um, is because those are the white people who didn't succeed at being white because they're poor. So Mm -hmm. like, if, if you're not rich, then why even have this identity? Um, and so I think existentially, to get at the core of like where whiteness as an identity, as a social construct, as a power with to which you can have varying degrees of proximity, um, to get at the core of it is to say, you didn't earn this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no amount of work, no amount of pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, no amount of labor or excelling or approving yourself could have gotten you this. You didn't earn this this was handed to you and i think if white people are not consciously aware of from whence they came and are not consciously aware of how they interact with and benefit from whiteness then it elicits a deep gut response that can only come from like what made you and mm-hmm. and why and why don't you like that being critiqued yeah okay.
3: that's
2: powerful
4: I think another part of that too is like, we like to compare ourselves against other people. Mm-hmm. So when <laughs> one says, well, like if a black person says, well, you know, you as a white person have privilege. And if that white person didn't grow up so poor, so rich or wealthy, they're like, mm-hmm. well, I had to struggle too. My parents worked hard and, you know, like, I didn't grow up wealthy by any means. My family, mm-hmm. we struggled. Like we struggled. We lived on a farm. It wasn't easy for us. And so I remember even as a kid saying stuff like that, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're you're wealthier than us. But so I think we get this whole like comparison mentality and we like to, and it's weird how, you know, typically people will say like, Well, I'm wealthier than you. I have more money. They like to show that we have more wealth, Mm -hmm. but they like to compare how hard we struggled for it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's where sometimes we get into white people, like, "Well, we struggled just as hard as you did." You know, we, my papa did la 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 la, and so I think all of that goes on, and we, it's, it's hard. I think for. And I don't want to just say the older generation, like the generations before me, my parents' generation type of thing, don't maybe understand that. Like the comparison as or like they comparison because especially back, okay, so this dates me, my parents were alive during the depression (laughs) type of thing. You know what I mean? Like, so everybody struggled back then just about so Mm -hmm. i think there's still they they have told us kids how much they struggled and then we continue to tell that so us white people we still struggle too just like the black people Mm -hmm. right and i think (laughs) that's where a lot of white people struggle with that whole like understanding what privilege actually is is that it's not what we have is that we didn't have obstacles in our way right preventing it the whole time you know we didn't that's, have yeah
1: that's powerful because it's 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 acknowledging that struggle is real which is mm-hmm. kind of the thing i usually hear people reaching for but not everybody realizes struggle's not equal it's not all the same
4: mm-hmm.
1: um like right yep. now i'm watching people as usual we're we're jumping to defend bill gates in, in having to give away or choosing whatever to give away some portion of the billions of dollars that he has. And people who are poor think about, well, if I gave away a quarter of my income, yes, your quality of, quality of life would be vastly affected. But he could give away all of his billions and just keep something short of that and his quality of life would never change. Because the struggle, the the effect isn't the same. Yes, you might lose something. But for people of color, the struggles that we've had that often have started when we were children, Mm
4: -hmm. like
1: figuring out how to navigate race, was a thing we did somewhere around preschool, elementary school. And for so many other groups, that was something they just started to become aware of sometime in college often. Like it's it's not right, if ever, Mm
2: -hmm. right. (laughs) And so (laughs) it's not major. They
1: have hello, so it's not (laughs) the same. And but because we feel like, well, all struggle is valid and all struggle needs to be honored. It's just like, okay, yes, but let's really compare what that struggle is, and no, the, the struggle Olympics means everyone loses. You know, we're not trying to see who can get the gold medal for the most struggle. That mm-hmm. doesn't, no one wants that gold medal. No. Um, but it does help us to to have a more accurate understanding. And for me, the point of compassion is to hear it named that people really are defending the legacy, the memories, the affection they have for their For their ancestors, for their parents and grandparents. Like, you know, white people can go on ancestry.com and see like everybody's name going back into Europe. Right. But we don't have that privilege as as Black Americans. You know, so our struggle (laughs) isn't quite the same Mm -hmm. because of what your ancestors were able to do to my ancestors, my ancestors' legacies. Um, And that's so hard to relate to people because they only know their own struggle most of the time
0: well and if i can if i can interject here um i saw it in a movie i can't i wish i could remember which movie my my wife probably can remember um a while back where the the person was saying that they got to where they are in life not because they made good choices but because they were given good choices that's Mm. a
2: little fires everywhere
0: that's it. Carrie yep. Washington. Carrie Washington wife. yells it at Reese Witherspoon. My my wife was very mad because they changed the main character from an Asian woman in the book to a black woman in the And she just texted me that to a black woman in the show. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. not because she doesn't like black people, obviously, <laughs> um, <but> because <laughs> how Asians, dare they? Right? <laughs> right, but because Asians are are very much a an unspoken uh, model yeah. minority. Um Mm -hmm. but but I remember hearing that and it hit me so hard. Where Mm. I can look around me and go, well, obviously that person could have made a better choice, but they made a bad choice and they're still ahead of where I am right now. Right. They've made worse choices than me every single step of the way. And for a long time I thought it was just um I was I was very grace and very hardcore. A uh, red Republican up until mm. I was registered Republican up until February, 2020. Um, Oh, wow. We're, okay. we are still <laughs> forgiving
1: him for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, still, <laughs> I'm still paying
0: my penance. Um, I hadn't agreed with the Republican party for a long time, but okay, that's a whole other conversation. Um, all my opinions shifted long before my, my voting voters registration. Anyway. Gotcha. Okay. But for a long time, um, I I looked at at the people around me in similar situations. And I thought, if I just work harder, I can be where they're at. If Mm. I just if I just save more money or if I if I find a better job or if I whatever, whatever, whatever. And then I actually started going back and looking through. Well, wait a second. My dad went from being an executive in Guatemala to working the night shift at Jack in the Box when we moved to this country. And he worked there for a year and mm-hmm. never got a raise. Whereas the people around him, and he'll still talk about it, the people around him were working there for a month and they got promoted to general manager because they spoke English, even though they were mm-hmm. just out of high school and he's sitting over here with an accounting degree. And so, again, looking at all those little choices, the, all all those little steps along mm-hmm. the way, where I go wait a second i was given the absolute best choices my parents could have given me period mm. but sometimes it's not that we make good choices it's just that we're given good choices and and that kind of cleared up really what privilege is to me and specifically racial privilege across the the races mm. what that is uh what that looks like and what that you know, how that plays out for all of us. Right. Does, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I um, I don't think I'd necessarily heard that story from you, Kevin, about your father um, and coming to this country and really like having to start over in some ways. I remember in college the first time I encountered that was there was, there was a, a man, you know, like we were like seeing ourselves as college teenagers, but there was a grown man from, um from continental Africa uh living in the dorm and we were like why is this grown why is this grown-ass man in the dorm and he was a medical student and it was just like okay well you know medical students kind of show up at all ages but it, it really struck us that he was there only to find out he was he was a full accomplished practicing doctor in his home country But in the U.S., none of that matters. You have to do all your undergrad and all these other basic level things here. Mm. Um, And he was willing to do that because of the international kind of precedence that coming to the U.S. has. But it struck me as so amazing that that one, that people would have to give up that much to come here. And, And two, it was just like, wow, that that seems insulting. But we don't. Again, we don't realize what some people are put through to come here. And clearly not everybody could come here the way he got here because they're still very selective about who can come into the country and why. Like, it's only to benefit our country. We don't actually want to let people actually work hard and have, quote unquote, the American dream unless we can capitalize from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that and, and, and it still means you still get treated as a person of color in a country that defaults to whiteness as being right, true, and good. So even if you're a frat boy who drinks their way through college and has all the pictures on the internet of you being drunk and, and in blackface or whatever, you can still grow up to be a, a political leader. <laughs> but for, for people of color who go through school, being straight-laced and, and, and doing all the things, they're still struggling just to not have the police called on them for taking a nap in the Mm. library or in the residence dorm so oh so many things so many things so um i wanted to 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 take it back again um if we go back um retrospectively um is there something that you would tell yourself that you would tell your 14 year old self based on what you know now um and it could be about anything about life about race about gender about sexuality about faith about how christians act um what would you what would you tell your 14 year old self with what you know right now and I think does I that open everyone, to anyone or i was gonna say i want i want everyone to, to jump oh, in on this. okay
0: oh, cool. i don't want to answer this is it's okay is it's, personal.
1: it's personal it's <laughs> personal
0: <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll,
1: we'll We'll prompt Grayson to go first, and then that okay. way the rest of you can get your stuff together. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> Special guest or scapegoat? They both begin with SG. <laughs> it's it's all scriptural. It's in the Bible. Amen. That's all. <laughs> it's Pauline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> something I would tell my fourteen-year-old self. I would say to me the fact that you have a boner lying in bed with this other guy means that you're in love with them. It's not anything other than what it is. It's not because you're just that good of friends with them. It's because you're in love with them. And please let yourself experience that reality and not overthink it.
1: All right. We have cracked open the... (laughs) (laughs) We have set a new a new record for E for explicit comments on the show. Um, I want to unpack that a little bit
2: before we move on.
1: I love that. <laughs> Thank you.
2: That's, that's fantastic. I, I, that's I
1: don't think all
2: boners mean we're in love, but I don't think this, that's what you were saying. <laughs> this one did. This was a love boner. Yes.
1: Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it's so valid. Like, I keep thinking about how much different my life would have been had I had queer examples and queer context for all of my adolescence. Like, mm. like n- all of it. I And I, 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 like you, was very academic. For whatever reason, I probably shouldn't even say this on the show. For, for whatever reason, my uh, parents had lots of books about sex and sexuality. It was just we never ever talked about any of that stuff in the home, mm. um, and so I could I could literally go to our family library and read a bunch of stuff that I don't know if I'd recommend to anyone else at this point, um, but I just didn't have I didn't have any any perspectives I didn't have any any people to help me figure that out so I do appreciate that that way that you like kind of nurtured your young self and was like hey you're all right. What what you feel is
2: what you feel, and that matters. Right. Yeah, I think um, the, the gift that I was given to be intellectual and think about things deeply and analytically um, helped me come out at a time when it was safer for me to do so um, because I was able to sort of suspend it in some academic reality of like, oh, well, you might just be very friendly attracted to them or you've never Mm -hmm. had a best male friend before so this is just what it feels like or I would tell myself things like oh you just have a penis fetish it doesn't mean you're gay Uh (laughs) I think there's still some men telling themselves
1: that today but
2: is it wait I part of me wants to unpack that part of me doesn't want to touch it I mean that was my whole gay experience in high school, right? Like, part of me wants to impact that, part of me doesn't want to touch it, and then a bigger part of me wants very bad to touch it.
1: Because <laughs> that's that's the thing we we probably need a whole episode about this. Straightness doesn't let straight people realize that they aren't one hundred percent straight.
2: Like, yeah, most mm-hmm. of
1: us aren't one hundred percent of anything, and you might like the look of a penis and it doesn't mean you want to do anything with it but it's okay to acknowledge that you have an interest that other straight guys may not have and you're still straight that's okay
0: see the the reason the reason why I know I'm straight is because you said that and I'm like who would like the look of a penis why (laughs) I mean there's some pretty ones out there I'm just just saying (laughs)
2: Now testicles on the other hand, I say there is a a smaller target demo for those. I Stacey I am in that smaller in target target demo. Um, I am too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever made Stacey blush this much. She's a it's She's...
4: sweating in here. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a flow of heat. Right. I really I'm just, love it. Yeah.
4: Diane. This is awesome. <clears laughs>
0: What was yeah. the question? We the question was, what <laughs> would we to tell to our tell
1: 14-year-old me. selves? And clearly, it's appropriate because 14-year-olds are thinking oh, about yeah. sex, regardless of what conservative Christian media would like you to believe.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. Wilson, um, I've I seen how Big me,
1: Mouth. The
3: sooner you talk about yes, it.
1: Yes, Big Mouth. What did you say, Sarah?
3: I said, so the sooner we talk about it as parents and mm-hmm. churches and whatever, the better.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in that vein, I would say to my 14-year-old self that it's going to be okay and that I can trust myself mm-hmm. um, so much of my life. And I'm just now, you know, thanks, therapist. So much of my life uh, was spent denying my own reality, you know, just literally believing something I made up rather than what was plain and true in front of me um, because the rest of society was saying, oh, you definitely should believe something else. You know, you definitely should believe you're not gay. It's a phase. You should believe you shouldn't tell your testimony because people won't receive you as a man of God. You should believe that uh, that all pornography is bad and it means that you have an addiction. It's like, no, I just have guilt and shame because that's what you told me I should have about it. Um, and to realize that I could have, I could have been doing great things rather than unpacking all this trauma and stuff. Because I believe what people wanted me to believe, so I would I would tell my fourteen years old self that I'll be all right and to trust myself.
0: What
3: about you,
1: Kevin? Are you ready
0: yet? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would tell. Kevin's I'll already t- awkward. I <laughs> will tell my fourteen year old self that. That. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I'll tell uh, my fourteen year old self that that boy you loved, he really did. <laughs> no, I was I was gonna say I was gonna say that the never mind. I'm not I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it because it involves boners and church and just and being on stage. It's just not nope, nope. Oh um, I
1: think you've already opened the door. Right. So you might as well keep on walking through it.
0: Um no, I'm shutting that door. It I would tell my 14-year-old self that um those doubts you have about your church and about the particular theology that that they espouse and that the denomination espouses are correct. Follow your instinct. Um, fo- follow what, what you you feel Jesus is telling you. Follow what you feel the Bible is saying because those people are just there to, to take power and hold on to power and they don't care about you. Woo. And that was a lesson that... Uh, I'm still learning in a lot of ways, but it took me probably another 12 years after that to learn. Um, Mm. And, and it was a hard lesson. Like, it's not, it's not fun to, Mm. to have the, the, that church, that denomination I was a part of was half of my life. And literally I spent, more time there than I had any other church any other denomination that's where I felt my call to ministry and where I wanted to get ordained and and everything um and the entire time at the back of my mind there was this little voice saying but wait it's not okay to think that way Mm -hmm. and it's not okay to believe those things and it's not okay to disagree and that abuse that you see isn't good And I had to like quiet that voice down to make space for what I thought wiser and stronger people than me had, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Only to find out that they were weak people. They just didn't know what they were doing either. They didn't know what they were doing, but they had convinced hundreds and thousands and millions of other people that they did know what they were doing and that mm. they did have the right answers and um, yeah, this, this is all fresh on my mind because I went viral, so look me up on Twitter. Ooh. <laughs>
1: really, Kevin? What's your Twitter name?
0: Uh, at Kev Coronado 92. At Kev
2: Coronado 92. Rev Kev.
0: Yeah, that's me. Oh yeah. Not anyway, nice. yeah, so that's that's what's that's what's fresh in my mind. That's what I would tell my my 14-year-old self and my 16-year-old self and my 18-year-old self and my 20-year-old self and my 22-year-old self and How old am I now?
1: <laughs> it's okay. You got to reparent all those just, parts of yourself. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm
0: just I just keep I just keep on going is it in.
2: the tweet where you talk about being part of something for 14 years
0: yes that one right mm. there liked it oh, yes i'm gonna go follow you now all right uh sarah it <laughs> looks like you've got it looks like you've got something to say as well
3: my 14 year old self, that's rough um <laughs> i i think the biggest thing i would say is go to therapy um mm. i needed it mm. Mm. and to acknowledge that what I was seeing was abuse and that my safety wasn't wasn't jeopardy. And um, just. uh, Yeah, I think that that year, when I think about being 14, like had I gotten into therapy, not to say that, you know, it's hard to look back and think, could I have prevented, you know, but maybe I could have gotten like <laughs> a head start on, you know, addressing some of my trauma instead of continuing to replay it out in relationships and, and just, yeah, as I got older. um, But yeah, therapy, I needed therapy at 14 years old and safety.
0: We all need therapy Mm. at 14 years old. And safety.
3: Or to acknowledge that what I was feeling wasn't that I was my alarm bells and my, my sense of not feeling safe was valid Mm, because I was witnessing abuse so dang I feel that I I wish therapy
4: was like a thing when I was a kid because it really wasn't unless you like had some big major
1: yeah major
4: issues it just (laughs) it wasn't offered you just didn't go and even medication wasn't talked about back then for Mm -hmm. mental health or whatever So for me, like my thing was, it would have been nice to have therapy, um, but I would also tell myself to ask for ADHD medicine (laughs) Mm, and, and like, I guess to like looking back now and I fully believe in the butterfly effect. Okay. So so like, I don't know if I would like change anything because then, you know, everything else down the line changes, you know?
2: Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'm with you
2: there so,
4: too. but I also would say to myself, don't get so fucking serious about church stuff. Like mm. don't make it your life
0: mm-hmm. because
4: so awesome. this is, this is my whole spiral. My teenage years were like mm. where I started to get that passion and, Oh, I'm going to be a the church fire.
2: Yeah. You're acquiring yeah. the fire.
4: And so for the next, you know, 30 some years of my life you know that I spent in Christian ministry and stuff it just yeah you don't want to be 50 and then going to college so that's what I would say
1: Mm -hmm. I mean nothing's wrong with going to college at 50
4: oh no 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 no. don't get me wrong but I just don't want to be starting like yeah
1: starting to figure out who you are
4: yeah Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that's real talk yeah.
4: Also, don't marry him. <laughs> He's a jerk.
1: There goes that butterfly effect out the that window. That was that was that
4: was, a, that was the yeah. first one. Yeah, not I feel, not I, who I'm married to I mean, now, but
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, Wait, I, feel, so you, I feel. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I feel like if if you did tell your 14 year old self that, then that would take care of itself down the line.
4: Knowing myself, no, I would have done it anyway.
0: Well, yeah, mm. I, I'm trying to believe the best in you, so.
4: <laughs> Thanks. Yes, optimism.
0: <laughs> That's me. That's fine.
2: This might be digging too deep, and if it is, let me know. But did you know who it is you were to marry at 14? Oh,
4: God, no. No, I had okay, no idea. Okay. <laughs> it would just be my future <laughs> self reminding me each year when I hit, like, 25 years old or 26, whatever I was, not to marry him. So.
2: Okay, okay. hmm <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. You are your own Beetlejuice. Don't marry him. Don't marry him. Don't marry him. Right,
4: <laughs> Exactly.
1: <laughs> I could, like, this, this feel Netflix needs to make a movie about, <laughs> like, going back and trying to, like,
3: correct your mistakes. Yes. And how, like, <laughs> oh, complete Jesus. anarchy
1: breaks out as a result.
3: Ooh. Yeah. What I wonder if I would have went to therapy at 14, where I would be now. again? Not right? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of cause those I really replayed and was living in almost every relationship I in played out my trauma all the way through my marriage. Yep. Mm. same.
0: It's mm-hmm. one of those things where I wish I could like fix my mistakes, but still be where I am now. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to give up my, my marriage. I don't want to give up my kids. Mm. I don't want to give up my home or my job or this, or that, or the other, but I also wish I didn't go through that. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: This is this is this is this thing I'm learning about. Thanks, TikTok. Um, learning <laughs> about reparenting your inner child. Like, you wow. do mm-hmm. speak to that to that child to that point in your life, mm-hmm. and you like help that child address like a loving parent, the one that you needed, which isn't anything about your parents, but like your parents couldn't be at every possible thing. Right. You know what you needed. And you go back and you speak to that to that part of yourself lovingly, gently and like teach them how to deal with what they're dealing with. And that you do change yourself right now based on talking to your to your inner self from back then. And it is such a it's such a, a interesting and novel concept to me, but I'm starting to I'm starting to embrace it. Like I'm starting mm-hmm. to, to look back and be like, okay. I think there's some. I mean, some people will say, oh, it's metaphysical and you gotta be what? You gotta be careful. I'm like, okay. I mean, I was created an image of the of the Almighty, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is the beginning and the end, beginning through the end. Like Ooh. if God can mm-hmm. be present with God's self, <laughs> I sure enough can be present with myself. <laughs> <I ain't that. laughs> Because I could tell I mean, my old self then that I was going to be okay. Now, it I I didn't know what being okay looked like, but I could I could see it then. So why can't I see my my old self and go back and say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, you could do this part differently, and you'll be all right." So. Like
2: I've like, I think in learning to love my inner child, I've had to put my inner child in a place where he isn't endangering both him and me um, in that, like, there's a reason why we don't give kids driver's licenses. There's a reason why our inner childs aren't supposed to drive our lives. Uh, Inner children, not childs, um, are supposed to drive our lives. Um, (laughs) And so I remember when I was uh, in more regular therapy um, via my, my school's counseling program or counseling center, Um, we talked a lot about inner child and um, an inability or a a difficulty I have with being the one to set boundaries and cut off friendships or end friendships because Mm. of like a a scarcity mentality that like, if Mm -hmm. I don't make it work with this one, then there's no one else. Um, (laughs) And so uh, we talked about that a lot. And they were like, what is your inner child doing? Why is your inner child in the driver's seat? You should be in the driver's seat. You're the one who's it's like in the holiday where she's like, I'm supposed to be the leading lady of my own life, for God's sake. It's like, <laughs> oh gosh, I need to watch that. <laughs> it's my it's maybe it's my second favorite Christmas movie. Um, I love it so much. Um, and yeah, so I remember so we had that conversation in therapy, and then I went to uh Blake's here in Atlanta, which is like the gay bar that everyone goes to um blake's on the park as it's known and there was this guy who i had been talking to on hinge and who i was supposed to see the next day and we just happened to bump into each other at this bar the night before and he was like oh my gosh hi like i'm so glad to meet you let's hang out and then immediately would start like you know going off to this person to talk to them or this person to talk to them and like as soon as we met i was already feeling like ignored or just not Mm. paid the proper amount of attention Um, and I eventually said like, I'm going to go home because I am just not feeling like you're paying me enough attention or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the next day he texted me and he was like, did you have enough of me? (laughs) And I said, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, actually, completely. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) Um, you may be a cup of tea, but you're not mine. Um, and, uh, and I, (laughs) (laughs) and, and so that was so radically different from what my inner child would have me do um that literally like the next day I was doing like some remote work nothing related to anything that required much introspection and I just started weeping and I was Mm -hmm. like actually picturing me as a child and mourning grieving that he can't be the one who's in charge and was like mourning the role that he had played in my life even though it wasn't a super constructive one Mm -hmm. um and like also, but also like, and I even cried about my inner child like two weeks ago. And I was like, I am so sorry that we went through this. <laughs> yeah. Um. And that's a whole tangent. But yeah, inner child stuff, things that I could tell my 14 year old self or my four year old self, um, mm-hmm. that resonates with me deeply.
1: That's what's the, I, I really do appreciate you sharing cause it. Cause it's new to me, but it, it makes sense. It's like I said, it's resonating right now. Um, hmm. And, you know, I, I, we're, we're wrapping up, but I, I'd encourage everyone out there to spend a minute and figure out what you would say to your 14-year-old self. Like, what? Think about what you're going through. Think about the stuff that you still haven't figured out now. Um, and, you know, and use it as an opportunity to think about uh, big, scary things in the world, hmm. right? Like, some of what we learned about race and racism was Formed when we were 14. Some of what we learned about sex and gender and sexuality um, was formed when we were 14. And we know better now, but we probably still haven't addressed when that was formed and what that meant to us then and what fears it caused and what pain it caused. Um, you know, like I, I was joking with Kevin earlier in the podcast, but we really do get scared into straightness as a default. And so many of us have had experiences that cause us to question, but because the, 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 the repercussions of questioning things, the repercussions of just being in our own bodies, especially uh, for women, women get told, oh, puberty's happening, you're a problem, you're going to cause somebody to fall, you're going to cause somebody to sin. Boys get told, like, you know, like all kinds of weird mythology that we've created around masturbation. Like we've been told some jacked up stuff, but um, you know, like the series is, it's like, this is the time to speak up. This is the time to speak out. Like we can reclaim our sexuality. We can reclaim um, the narratives of what has happened to us. And so, so yeah, I really, Grace and I really appreciate you being on the podcast this week. Uh, every time we talk, it is absolutely a pleasure. Every time I see you at a conference, it's a pleasure. Um, and so I don't know. I these conferences. <laughs> you should <they're> fun <laughs> you should you should. Uh, I was going to say, like, I, I know I have one in Albuquerque, New Mexico in January, the Key Christian Fellowship Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure there's probably one that might be happening around October November. I can circle back and I'll put details into the uh, show notes, but um, but yeah, like if you've never been to a, a queer Christian conference, you should go. It doesn't mean you have to be queer. It doesn't even mean you have to actually believe in same-sex marriage. It just means you want to see what other Christians who are loving Jesus and following God are doing in the world, and it's okay. It's okay for you to step out and check out what other Christians are doing, even if you don't agree with them. Um, because, again, like we were, we were scared straight. As children, you can't go to that church. You can't go in those other places. You'll be open-minded and your brain will fall right out. But if anything, and I was thinking this earlier, Grayson is a beautiful example of you can, you can give kids the Bible, you can give kids the opportunity to question things, to question faith. And at the end of the day, they come out better for it, rather than, rather than whatever your worst fear is about letting people question things. So, Mm -hmm. Thank you so much again, Grayson, for being here. This is the Church Leaders Roundtable Podcast. Grayson, if people want to follow you, um, where should they do that? If they want to get in touch
2: with you or learn more about what you're doing in the world, how, how should they yeah. reach out? <laughs> uh, I, I still use Facebook, so you can find me there. Um, my URL is ghester Um And then on Twitter, my uh, handle is at Grayson underscore Hester. um, And that is uh, G-R-A-Y-S-O-N-H-E-S-T-E-R. And then my Instagram handle is just my name, at Grayson Hester. I got in just in time that I just have my name. So uh, yeah, so at Grayson underscore Hester for Twitter and at Grayson Hester for Instagram coolness
1: coolness and if you want to email us and uh, you know let us know what you like what you don't like or um, what you love to see on the show please email us at the CLr podcast at gmail.com um, and we will be back with you um, happy pride month to everyone that is um, celebrating the lives the legacies and accomplishments of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, two-spirit, intersex, all kinds of people who are outside of the um, normative or typical um, heterosexual or cisgender spectrums. So we want to just celebrate those, those people who've often been silenced and minimized and who have been speaking up and speaking out. So thanks again, Grayson, and we will see you next time.
0: Maybe I want to do you first. No, never mind. That's not a bad. That's what I said. Working, Whoops. <laughs> That's not Too late. I it's said a, It's it. on record.